Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we come back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been a great study thus far and certainly looking forward to this morning. This week on Capitol Hill, the Senate is going to uh, have uh, some hearings with the CEOs of various social media platforms. And the topic of discussion is uh, what appears to be the uh, blocking of access to certain articles that were considered to be unfavorable to one of the presidential candidates. And uh, no matter what that particular issue turns out to be, I just take note of this because it's not the first time that these men have been before the Congress. It's not the first time that they've had to have this kind of discussion and in the past, when they've been questioned on this matter, they, their answer has generally been that this is a problem. With the proliferation of social media and the expansive number of voices who are involved with it and the speed at which information is put out into, the, uh, you know, in, into circulation and, and, and uh, liked and retweeted or reposted or all those other things... The speed at which that happens makes it very difficult for, for any human being to vet what is true and what is not true, what is valid and what's not valid. And so the, uh, the CEOs have uh, basically promised that they're going to deal with this by writing an algorithm that's going to be able to determine what is, uh, what's reliable and what's not reliable, uh, what can be trusted and what cannot be trusted, and uh, apparently... Unfortunately, uh, at this point, they have been unsuccessful in doing anything like that. And of course, I don't even know if it's possible to do that. I don't even know if you can come up with a program that could determine what's true and what's not true. Because honestly, I don't even know if most of the people who are running these companies or most of the people who are using their services or most of the people who are watching TV or even having conversations on a daily basis. I don't even know if many people can really have any confidence in what is true and what is false these days. There seems to be a proliferation of, a, uh, a, of an issue of credibility or lack of credibility in society. People are increasingly cynical, they're increasingly skeptical because they hear of stories or they see things that are, that are uh, posted and it's coming from all kinds of sources and some of them, they don't know whether or not they're legitimate or not. They don't know whether or not it's to be trusted. They don't know, they've read stuff in the past that they thought was true and now they don't know if it's true. So no one really knows who to believe. No one really knows whether or not the, the words they hear are something they can rely on. Well, for very different reasons, the same was true in the day of, of Jesus Christ. There was a crisis of credibility going on in Israel and Jerusalem for reasons that we'll see in just a moment. But there was a problem that had been around for a long time with, with a lack of credibility, with a lack of trust, with really not knowing who to believe or what to believe. And that, uh, that created a system whereby people were trying in increasing ways to validate their voices, to validate their words, but those attempts in themselves were not always sincere and actually served in some ways to undermine the confidence of listeners. Now, this all comes to us in verses 33 through 37 of Matthew chapter 5, which is itself a part of a much bigger discussion in the Sermon on the Mount. And the discussion goes all the way back, you know, really, to, uh, to verse 17, when Jesus is talking about how he didn't come to do away with the Old Testament, he came to confirm it. And yet, he says, he gives this warning in verse 20, that you must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees if you'll ever have any hope of entering into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the reason he says that is because the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who were actually appealing to words and verses and certain teaching out of the Old Testament 
as a way of establishing their righteousness, a way of establishing their uh, uh, validity. But in fact, what they were doing is they were misusing the Old Testament and misusing those verses. They were the ones who again and again were, were teaching through their traditions and through these uh, twistings and, uh, of the Old Testament, were teaching things which actually undermine legitimate the doctrine from the Old Testament, but more importantly, undermine legitimate righteousness. And so Jesus is, uh, has set out to correct so much of that, to help these, uh, uh, these people listening to him to understand what the real demands were of God versus the superficial demands of their spiritual leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. And, and throughout this chapter, he gives these six contrasts that we've been looking at, going back to verse 21, and then again in verse 27, and then again in verse 31. And as we come today to verse 34, uh, there, this is the fourth out of six of these contrasts that he gives, where he uses this very familiar formula. You've heard that it was said to those of old... And then he'll say in verse 34, but I say to you, a six contrast that are setting the true teaching of the Old Testament against the twisted teaching of the scribes and Pharisees in order to establish God's genuine desire in the law, as well as to correct their understanding about what real righteousness looks like. And in this particular case, it has to do with the issue of oaths or swearing, or we would just say honesty and truthfulness in general. This is what he says in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, Or do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus is dealing here with what had become an issue in the first century regarding oaths and swearing because there was an issue with credibility and truthfulness. And so he tries to unpack this for us to understand what real righteousness demands versus the superficial righteousness of the Pharisees. And, and he does it in three basic points. The first one in verse 33 is really just citing the legal provision for trustworthiness. That, that which is stated in the law. And he gives it to us there. He says that it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's not really quoting an Old Testament passage per se, but it's really a summary of what the Old Testament taught on this issue. The Bible, of course, has much to say about the issue of honesty and truthfulness. And and even as you drill down into this particular issue of oaths and swearing and making uh, uh, vows or false vows or whatever... All of these things are sort, of, are, are sort of regulated in the law itself because they had become a convention of society. In fact, they've been around for uh, really as long as we know in society. From very, very early on in civilization, there appears to be formulas for vows and for swearing and for all those things, and they had to be. They had to be a part of society because ever since the beginning of time, we have had to find ways to try to validate, try to verify what someone's telling us, to try to figure out whether or not what they're saying is true. And the reason that is, is because men and women are liars. They're untrustworthy. They're born liars. Psalm 58 says that we go astray from the womb speaking lies. It's our tendency, we, 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 it is our nature to want to distort the truth. 
And we can be trained to tell the truth. We can be reinforced. That can be reinforced in our hearts and minds by reinforcing the consequences of telling a lie or, or the value and the beauty of telling the truth. But the reality is that in and of ourselves, apart from that kind of upbringing and environment, in and of ourselves, we are all prone to deception, according to the Scripture. And so the Old Testament had to deal with this. And it had to give it in straightforward ways. And Jesus references it here in terms of this legislation. First of all, uh, he speaks of the issue of swearing falsely. You shall not swear falsely, which is a reference to the ninth commandment, which in Exodus 20.16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's basically a call for truthful speech, a, a, a call for truthful statements. When you speak about someone, when you speak about your neighbor, when you speak about your, your uh, co-worker or whatever it might be, this prohibits you from, from affirming what you know to be false or swearing something to be true when you know it's not true. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord, I am the Lord. So So you're supposed to speak truthfully, but especially whenever you are invoking the name of the Lord to validate what you're saying. And so Jesus is just sort of summarizing that teaching from the Old Testament. And then secondly, he talks about the issue of oaths, oaths that you would make to the Lord, which is basically an oath is basically a statement or an invitation of punishment against yourself. If your statement does not come true, it's, it has an implied if-then component to it. You're saying, if what I'm saying is not true, then may God do to me so on and so forth. So you're calling on God to punish you in some way if your statement turns out to be false. And as I said, society has had to to utilize these kinds of devices throughout its history in order to have guarantees of truth. And we have them even in our own society. We have things like the Hippocratic Oath, which doctors and physicians take not only to uh, operate in the best interest of the patient, but to operate with integrity in their overall scope of what they're doing. We have oaths of citizenship for people who are immigrating. We have oaths of allegiance that people might take to their country. We have, we have oaths of office, which public servants and politicians take to uphold the laws and the constitution of the state or the nation where they're serving. We have all these kinds of oaths. And on top of that, we have vows. We stand and take vows at our wedding. We even take vows sometimes of membership for churches. So we have all of these things which we have uh, uh, added to our society in order to validate and to guarantee faithfulness to the words that we speak. And these are normally done, of course, in solemn ceremonies or formal ceremonies, and they largely serve two purposes. On one hand, we would say that they express the weightiness of the words that are being spoken. That is to say, we administer oaths in situations where unfaithfulness or uh, infidelity to the words would have dire consequences, particularly in the, in the um, you know, life of a public leader or the life of, of someone who's uh, binding themselves to some sort of long-term commitment or some serious commitment. Or we administer oaths in situations where we're unfamiliar with the people where we don't have a lot of opportunity to independently verify their character and their trustworthiness. So you see oaths normally taking place, not in sort of private settings, but in public settings, large gatherings, ceremonies uh, that might involve, as I said, someone taking on a role of broad leadership, courts of law where the judge and the jury really don't know the witness personally or, or they have to administer an oath for them to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is a part of society. It's a part of the conventions that we use. And the Scripture speaks to it. The Scripture regulates it. The Scripture has to to, uh, sort of give you warnings about taking those kinds of oaths. Now, 
when we look into Scripture, we see not only that kind of legislation, but you also see that on occasion, God himself used oaths. God himself actually made these kinds of vows, if you will. Hebrews 6.13 tells us, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to, his, to the heirs of the promise the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now this is not something that God did often. This is something that was really rare, but it is something he did on occasion. And in this particular situation with a, a, a kind of, uh, uh, to add a kind of weight to what he was saying to Abraham, God committed what he's saying to Abraham with this oath. But you'll notice he says that there was nothing by which God could swear beyond himself because there was nothing beyond himself that could guarantee his words other than himself, which is admittedly kind of secular. Uh, Excuse me, circular. It's kind of circular. So God was basically saying, well, you know, this is true because I say it's true. And I can swear by my, myself that this is true. None of a, you and I couldn't do that because we can't guarantee the truth of anything. But God did this and he did it appropriately as he swore by himself. But even doing that, God was, if you will, kind of accommodating himself to our conventions. God didn't, in other words, he didn't necessarily need to validate and verify his word because his word is always true. He never lies. The scripture says God cannot lie. And so there wasn't any kind of, uh, of, of credibility issue with God. And yet, as the scripture says here, to show more convincingly to the heirs. In other words, to add weight to the words that he was saying for all those who would come after Abraham, he guaranteed it with an oath. He did it in a ceremony. In the same sense, you can see oaths being used even in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, Romans 1, 9. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may, I may, it now, uh, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Or 1 Thessalonians 2, you are witnesses and God also How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Or in 2 Timothy 1, 4, excuse me, 2 Timothy 4, 1, Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So each one of these represents a kind of a kind of an oath that underscores the importance of the words or underscores the importance of the occasion. And so scripture scripture governs these kinds of things. It regulates these kinds of things. It gives warnings in these kinds of situations that when you give an oath of that kind, you need to take very seriously what you're saying. Leviticus, excuse me, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so this was the standard of the Old Testament. This was the standard of Scripture. And this is what Jesus is referring to. These kinds of uh, these kinds of, uh, uh, of statements that you would make, the scripture uh, affirmed that. It provided for that, but it gave you warnings to make sure that when you spoke in those ways, you spoke appropriately. Now, unfortunately, the Jews, when they came to these verses and dealt with these verses, didn't deal with them the way that God intended them. 
It's not the way that they used these verses. In fact, they actually took these verses and twisted their meaning in order to make them serve, if you will, the exact opposite purpose. So, once Jesus notes that basic provision for trustworthiness in the law, he begins to point out, secondly, the perversion of, Jews, of this uh, trustworthiness by the Jews. And you'll see this in verse 34 through 36. Jesus begins to drill down into how the scribes and Pharisees had twisted these things to actually cover up their lack of faithfulness in their speech. And all really as a part of their superficial system of righteousness, all because their main concern when they spoke was not to uphold the truth. Their main concern when they spoke was to uphold their appearance of righteousness, to uphold their appearance of truthfulness. And so they constructed a whole system which in itself was not meant to hold them to account in honesty and truthfulness. It wasn't meant to, to expose when they violated their words. The entire system was built in order to provide them cover whenever they spoke out of turn or whenever they spoke what was untrue. These men, as Jesus will point out a number of times, were hypocrites. They lived differently in private than they, than they acted in public. They had sort of a secret life, and people who are hypocrites have to be dishonest people. They need to lie, and they need to lie often because they have to cover up the unrighteousness that they don't want anyone to see. They don't necessarily have a love of the truth, and they don't have so much a problem with deception. They just have a problem with being found out about it. And so these scribes and Pharisees, as Jesus points out, created systems. They created statements where they could be considered technically true or technically not liable when in fact, they were evading the truth. They were twisting the truth. They were trying to get out of accountability. And all of this out of a twisted view of what God's word would say. They had constructed this system that allowed them to deceive and yet not be called a liar. Now, the way they did this was, first of all, by beginning with the basic assumption of ancient Jews, which is the fact that you should never speak God's name. This was a, a basic and absolute aversion that, that ancient Jews would have to ever speaking God's name, to ever writing God's name. They considered it, in fact, to be a violation of the law to use God's name because they thought that would be taking God's name in vain. And so they had all these special ways to get by without ever pronouncing God's name or even writing God's name. If you look at ancient scripture, copies of scripture, you'll see that they had uh, uh, ways to write uh, the scripture. And when you came across the name of God, they would replace it with a different word in order to avoid even writing the name of God. And this in turn then became an elaborate scheme whereby they could make oaths and they could make vows without ever mentioning God, without ever mentioning God's name. Instead, they would replace it with all kinds of other things, but they would never actually mention God. Now, you can hear this in the way that Jesus deals with their oaths here in verse 34, because he says to them, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth, in verse 35, or by Jerusalem, or even in verse 36, by your own head. This sort of refers to this whole sort of distorted system that they had where they would take these oaths and they would take these vows without ever mentioning God, but replacing it with something else. And then uh, later on, they established a kind of system to, to sort of judge whether or not 
uh, there, was, should, there should be some sort of punishment when you broke your oath. And they had this pecking order or they had this sort of measurement system based on what you said and what you pledged to and all these other things, whether or not you should be punished or whether you should not be punished or whether you should just be punished in a minor way or whether or not it was a major offense or any of those things. And it complete, completely made a mockery of honesty. Even later on in the Talmud and the Jewish uh, 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 a holy book in the Mishnah, one of the rabbis uh, speaking really on this whole tract that had been dedicated to the subject of oaths, an entire tract in the Mishnah dedicated to this subject. One of the rabbis would say, if any swear by heaven, by earth, or by the sun, although the mind of the swearer may be under these words to swear by him who created them, yet it is not an oath, meaning that you're not bound to it. There's no penalty if you break it. He says, or if any swear by some of the prophets or by some of the books of Scripture, although the sense of the swearer may be to swear by him that sent the prophet or that gave that book, nevertheless, this is not an oath, end quote. So, so you can see even hundreds of years after Christ, they're still sort of entering into these debates. And like I said, you have this entire tract out of the Mishnah that's just going through with all of these sort of levels of discussion about how guilty you are in this situation, that situation, depending on the word that you use and depending on what you swore to. Later on, even in Matthew 23, Jesus will have to come back to this issue again with the Pharisees. And he'll say, to, he'll say in verse 16 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that, was, that, that is made, excuse me, the, the temple that has made the gold sacred? Verse 18, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Verse 21, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So you can hear here Jesus pointing out their basic fallacy. That really it doesn't matter whether you use God's name or not. It doesn't matter whether you're referring to, uh, to something that that uh, is just uh, uh, a part of the temple or a city or whatever. It doesn't matter the fact that you're not using God's name because you're still referencing things which are under the control and the sovereignty of God because he controls everything. And you don't somehow escape offending God by just changing up some of your words. You don't sort of escape offending God by just simply giving people the false impression of your trustworthiness when in fact your real intent is to evade the truth. You can't do that by just simply pledging to the temple or pledging to the gold of the temple or pledging to Jerusalem or pledging to heaven or pledging to any of that because the bottom line is you're accountable to God. And he's the one who's in control of all that. And by extension, you don't control what's true and what's not true. You don't make that determination. God makes that determination. And it's your responsibility to make sure that your words line up with his reality. To make sure that your words line up with what he has ordained. That's the basis on which you will be judged. You see, the Jews had actually developed this system where typically in an oath, you take a vow before God and you say, may God do to me, if, I, if my words don't come true, may God do to me whatever you uh, proclaim. You take, a, you take an oath inviting God's judgment and acknowledging God's control. But these Jews, by, by 
twisting the law about God, taking God's name in vain, had actually constructed this whole elaborate system of oaths which never mentioned God and actually gave the impression that God is not really even the main factor in the truthfulness of what they're saying. And instead of inviting punishment on themselves, they were actually suggesting that there would be a curse against Whatever it is that they mention, a curse against the altar, a curse against the temple, a curse against the gold of the temple, a curse against, you know, heaven or Jerusalem or whatever it is they put in place, as if they had any control at all over whether or not those entities would be cursed or not. The reality is they had no control of that. They had no control of that because they are not the ones that matter. You are not the one that matters when it comes to determining what is real and what is not real. God is the one who does that. And you hear it even in Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus talks about this. He talks about this sort of sophistry in their word games And he tells us, do not take an oath either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, the very place where God's throne is established, or by earth, because it's his footstool. Footstool is literally somewhere where you would rest your your feet, and so it came to be uh, symbolic of everything that was subservient to the king and everything and everyone under his domain. He literally had the authority to rest his feet on them if he wanted to. Or he says, don't take an oath by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. The, 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 it's the messianic uh, royal throne that's going to be established there. It's not your city. And he even says this, and do not take an oath by your head. For you cannot make one hair black or white. So you don't even have control over that. You can't even control the color of your hair. Ladies, don't worry, that's not a a statement against your highlights. (laughs) He's talking about the aging process. You can't even control that. You can't control that you're getting one day older, that you're getting one more gray hair. You're not on the throne. That's the big picture. You're not the one who's in control of all this stuff. And when it comes to the issue of deception, this is what it's really all about. It's all about control. See, the Pharisees had constructed a system where they actually, by not using God's name, they had actually begun to factor God out of the equation. But, but when it comes to, <coughs> to truthfulness, God is actually the biggest factor. He's the only factor. It's all really about his authority. It's all about accountability to him. And you, when you deceive and when you lie, you basically are trying to seize control of that from God. You don't like the fact that you uh, have failed to do something. You don't like the fact that you have sinned. You don't like the fact that you're weak. You don't want to be held accountable for any of that stuff, so you just lie in order to try to escape the consequences. You don't like the fact that someone else is more talented. You don't like the fact that someone else has has achieved more than what you've achieved, and so what do you do? You exaggerate your achievements. Or someone else is getting ahead, and they're more popular, and you don't like it, so what do you do? You spread slander about them. You try to bring them down because you don't like the position that you now have relative to them. And all of this is exactly what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. This is what he did. He tried to usurp the authority and the rule of God over reality. You remember there in Genesis chapter chapter 3, he came to Eve and he asked her a basic question. Don't you have the right to eat of any tree in the garden? Eve responded with what was essentially an accurate statement of reality. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
And that's true. I mean, all of that represents exactly the way God made the world, exactly where God put Adam and Eve and the kind of restrictions that he had on their life. Nothing, nothing untoward at that point. Until Satan tries to deny that basic reality. And he says to Eve, you will not surely die. You see, at that point, what Satan has done is he's just assaulted God. And he's assaulted God's right and God's authority to establish what is real and what is true. What he's essentially saying is this. God says that it's this way. But I say that it's this way. And all of it comes down to the issue of control. The issue of control. This is always the issue when it comes to deception. You do not like the realities that you face. You don't like some of the circumstances that you're in. You don't like the household that you're a part of. You don't like the marriage that you're in. You don't like the job that you have. You don't like the income that you have. You don't like the weaknesses, the frailty of your body. There are all kinds of things that you just don't like. And so in order, rather than just facing up to that and rather just admitting that, you lie about those realities. You tell people that you have more money than what you have, that you've done greater things than what you've actually accomplished. You tell people that you have more skills than what you really know. Or in some cases, in some cases, you don't like the fact or the accountability of the fact that you are a sinner. You don't like the fact that your laziness has, has gotten the best of you. And that there are more diligent people who, who have applied uh, principles of goodness and rightness and have achieved something. And rather than just admitting that fact, you lie about whatever it is. You don't like the fact that you have idols in your heart that have taken control of your life and have caused you to be negligent in certain areas. And rather than just admitting that, and rather than admitting how it has spawned all kinds of sinful activity, rather than just accepting that reality that God declares about you, you lie. You don't like the fact that your greed is there. You don't like the fact that your lust is there. You don't like the fact that your, your uh, anxiety is there. You don't like any of that stuff. And rather than accepting the reality of what God says about you, you try to rewrite that reality with your own truth. These are all issues of God's sovereignty. And every time you lie and every time you deceive, you are assaulting God's proper right and God's proper sovereignty to determine and to judge what is real and what is true and what is right. You're basically joining Satan and the work that Satan began in the garden you're joining his rebellion. And you're saying along with him, God says it is this way, but I say it is this way. This is why when the Pharisees were lying and trying to slander Jesus, in John chapter 8, he says, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, this was what these guys were that Jesus is talking to. These scribes and the Pharisees, these false spiritual leaders, like all false spiritual leaders, they were liars. They lie because they were much, much more concerned with how they appear to others Rather than yielding to God's truth, rather than yielding to reality, they were more concerned with covering up the reality of who they are and keeping up appearances than they were of yielding to God. And so the scripture for them was just something to be twisted, to be turned, ways for them to find technicalities by which they could claim to still be true even though they're false. And all of this really to generate trust in other people. 
they would come up with these oaths and they used them apparently in, uh, in um, really uh, extensive ways. And they came up with these because they had their own hypocrisy. People could see the hypocrisy. People were skeptical about these guys. They were almost guarded. And so these guys had to figure out ways to try to generate trust or generate uh, faith in their words because their words themselves were not trustworthy. And so they came up with this elaborate system of oaths where they would try to convince people to believe them. Because these people were much, much more concerned about personal image than they were with the truth. This is a sign of an unregenerate heart. This is, this is a sign of someone who doesn't know God. And you can see it in their life because someone who has been touched in their heart by the hand of the Lord, they love truth. They yield themselves to God. And what God says about them, they yield themselves to it. So when God says you sin, they accept that. When God says you're a sinner, they accept that. When God says that you're weak, they accept that. When God places them in circumstances that they don't necessarily like, they accept that. That's the heart of a a regenerate person, someone who's been taken out of the darkness and brought into the light of God's glorious Son. But these guys weren't like that. They didn't love the truth. In fact, they wanted to find every way they could to get around the truth. They wanted to find any way they could to excuse their lying. And so they came up with this way of making oaths that excluded God. They're going to make all kinds of promises about the altar, about the temple, about Jerusalem, about all these other things. When in fact, Jesus tells them, you have no control. You're not the authority of those things. You're not the one who's sovereign over those things. You're not the one who is in control of any of that stuff. Jerusalem, the altar, the gold of the temple, heaven, earth, whatever. And that's even true as it relates to your own head. See, you would think that you have at least authority there. But Jesus says you don't even have authority there. You can't even make your one hair black or white. All that stuff, all of it, misses the fact that it is God who judges. It is God who judges. You can swear on that stuff. You can swear on your mother's grave. You could imply to people, look, if my words don't come true, you go desecrate her grave. You can desecrate her honor. You can do all those things. But guess what? You don't control that. God is the one that determines whether or not your mother is honored. And God is the one that determines whether or not your words are true. And so Jesus just says here in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. And he's not, by the way, talking about oaths in formal ceremonies. He's not saying you can't take an oath of office or he's not saying you can't swear in a court of law to tell the truth. We've already seen this, that God himself made oaths at certain times and Paul made oaths at certain times and on occasion, even the Old Testament prescribed oaths. There are people who, through the years, uh, people like the Mennonites or the Quakers who've misunderstood what Jesus is saying here. He's not trying to undo all of that stuff from the Old Testament, and he's not saying that you should never take a vow uh, in your wedding or any of those things. What he's pointing out is you cannot take God out of the equation when you're talking about truth and error. He's not banning all kinds of oaths. He's referring to this whole distorted system that the Jews had constructed where they were somehow imagining that they had authority to determine whether or not their words should be punished and how they should be punished and who should punish them and when. You're not sovereign. You're not in control. 
And so your life and your daily life, you shouldn't have to resort to oaths. They may be appropriate in a ceremony, but they shouldn't be something that you use in the course of your life. Your life should have enough integrity. Your character should be recognized well enough that your word is respected. Which really brings us to the third point that Jesus is making in verse 37, which is basically the practice of this trustworthiness. He says in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Literally, in the original, it's yes, yes, or no, no. He's doubling the words here, not suggesting that you sort of, uh, sort of assure people by r- repeating your words. That would be probably no better than an oath if you have to keep telling people, yes, 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 I'll do this. What Jesus is saying is that your yes should reflect the yes of reality. And your no should reflect the no of reality. And so when someone asks you, did you do that? If you did do that, then your word should be yes. If you didn't do that, then your word should be no. So let your yes reflect the yeses and let your no reflect the noes. In other words, just let your word reflect reality the way that it is. Anything else, he says, comes from evil. Or a better translation would be, it comes from the evil one. That is, it comes from the devil. Just like he said in John 8 to the Pharisees, he's the father of lies. And when you lie, you are behaving like his children. So let your words reflect that. Do you know how to build a life that is trustworthy? Do you know how to establish a tongue that's trustworthy? It's real simple. It's trust in the Lord. It's just simply trusting what God says and what God has ordained. Trustworthiness arises out of trust for God. And so even whenever you have done something that you shouldn't do and you are afraid to talk to your boss about it because you're afraid of what the consequences are going to be and you 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 know you might lose your job, rather than lying about it, you trust the Lord That he can take care of that situation. He can take care of you. He can take care of your family. And so you go in there and you speak what is true because you trust God. Or you're afraid to talk to your spouse about something that was going on because you're afraid of what the reaction is going to be. And you can just imagine all these terrible things that are going to come out of it. And yet God tells you to trust him. Trust Him to be able to guide you and to guide your spouse through that situation, to be able to work through all of the complexities and to be able to come out stronger on the other side. But you don't turn to deception to get around that. You put your trust in God and then speak the truth. You're afraid to tell your parents whatever it is that you're guarding or whatever it is that you're hiding because you're afraid of how they're going to respond, you're afraid of how they're going to think about you, you're, they're afraid of what they're going to do to you. But your real problem is that you don't trust God. You don't trust that he's able to use that situation. You don't trust that he's able to show you mercy and kindness. And so you do not trust God and you turn to deception, but the way to trustworthiness is to put your trust in the Lord. Once you've settled that issue, then all the reasons for deception go away. All the reasons for deception go away. So it's simple. You don't want to speak that which arises from the evil one. You don't want to be his 
follower. You don't want to be an, a soldier in his army assaulting God and assaulting his reality. You want to be someone who's a child of God who places your life and yourself in the kindness and the mercy of his hands. And though it's painful to see the realities of who you are in your sin and in your weakness and in your failings, and though it's painful to admit the struggles of your circumstances, you place your trust in him, believing that he will take care of the rest. That's the pathway to a life of trustworthiness. I hope that some of you listening to this today are really taking that into consideration. Because you're coming to a church setting and being around other religious people. All it does is generate in you more and more deception. All it does is generate hypocrisy. You pretending to be in front of all these people something that you're really not. And so you have to live this constant double life. But you do that because at the end of the day, you don't trust the Lord. The Lord says this, that if you accept what He says about you, if you believe that you are a sinner, and deserving of God's punishment. If you accept that and confess yourself a sinner, God is faithful and just and He'll forgive you your sins and He'll cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. No more double life. No more deceiving and going around and having to cover up all your tracks. You become a true person in the hand of God. Father, we're so grateful for our Savior who taught us truth by His life and by His words. He exposed our weaknesses. He exposed our need. But He didn't expose it just simply to crush us. He exposed it to call us into the bosom of His care. Into accepting his loving and gracious hand over our lives to trust him with all of our being. Lord, we've done that. We accept the fact of our weakness. We accept the fact of our frailty. We accept the fact of our sin. And we ask you in your mercy to receive us as we are. To forgive us, to cleanse us, to restore us so that we would be true and we would know the truth. Lord, we ask these things because you, you're the God of truth. What you speak is true. And, we're, and your gospel is the truth that makes us free. We bless you for it, Lord. We bless you for our Savior in whose great name we pray. Amen.